Hello and welcome to the Sound on Sound People and Music Industry podcast with me, Sam Ingalls. My guest today is Bernd Malmqvist. Now, there are not very many people remaining who have links to the golden age of microphone design from the 1950s and 1960s. But Bernd joined the Swedish microphone manufacturers Pearl in 1954 and spent his entire working life there. So I'm very, very pleased to be joined by Bernd today to find out more about the history of microphone design in Sweden and his thoughts on their sometimes rather unusual technologies. Welcome, Bernd. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Now, you joined the Pearl Company, as I understand, in 1954. Did you know anything about microphones at that time? <laughs> no, nothing. I didn't understand. I know what a microphone was. <laughs> I can see people talking some instrument which um, changes the, the sound to electrical signals. <laughs> but I don't understand how. So what was your first job at Pearl? Uh, I, I worked exclusively with mechanical manufacturing of different parts. Uh, in, in that time, long time ago, uh, we were mostly producing crystal microphones in the beginning and dynamic microphones. And, um, and those models are more or less just mechanical parts. So what sort of machinery did you have available to make these microphones? Were you doing things mostly by hand or did you have any production line equipment? Standard machinery. You can find it everywhere. Uh, not not the special machines. And for many years you worked closely with Runa Rosander, who was the founder of Pearl. Um, can you tell us a little bit about Mr. Rosander and, and your working relationship with him? The first years I worked at Pearl Microphones, uh, I, I was one of, of other employees, so I don't have any special relation to Mr. Rosander, who was chief. But l later, when I was a production manager, we discussed daily uh, about planning and uh, material requisitions. Uh, so in, in, uh, at that time, I close more near Mr. Rosander. Mr. Rosander was, um, he, he was in the old, from the old school. <laughs> he, he was the manager of the company and you have to look up to him. <laughs> uh, but I have no problem with that. But so it was <laughs> in the 50s. <laughs> But he was also a very uh, original designer. Yes, he, uh, Mr. Rosander was designer of most microphones uh, at that time when I be began to, to work at Pearl and for a couple of decades forward. My relation to, to Mr. Rosander changes a bit when uh, I, believe I, I would get more involved in R&D. It was not so, it was so easy to, to get his ear for an idea. Mr. Sander was a person who, who wanted to be the man who came up with the solutions. <laughs> uh, 
But <laughs> if I told him, can this be an idea to solve the problem? He got the chance to think of it and uh, then he <laughs> suggested this is his own idea. <laughs> I had no problem with that. But at that time, of course, in the 1950s and 1960s, a lot of this information that was needed to design microphones was not easily available. How much were you aware of what other companies like Neumann and AKG and Schurps were doing, and how much did you have to work out for yourselves? Uh, in the first decades, I did know, know more or less nothing about other uh, manufacturers. And I'm not sure, but Mr. Rosander don't care so much about the competitors. So all the uh, technical knowledge and the developments that you and Runa Rosander brought into microphone design, they came from your own research? Yes, it was for our own, own research, um, mostly. I, I think I can say about Mr. Rosander, he, he don't... Uh, he never booked any ideas from others. He, he finds our microphones must be the best. <laughs> because a lot of the major European microphone manufacturers worked in collaboration with national broadcasters or universities, for example. Was that not the case with Pearl? Not, not myself, but uh, Mr. Sander, he has some contact with Kate, TH, which means the Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm, uh, and, um, but also some contacts with Swedish radio. They, sometimes, sometimes they ask for some solutions and uh, we had possibility to make it. And who were the main customers for Pearl microphones at this time in the 50s and 60s? In the 50s, we producing a lot of crystal microphone capsules and which we delivered to um, to company who manufacture communication systems but um, we also producing microphones for um, tape recording companies such um, Tanberg from Norway Radionet in Denmark and the Swedish company Luxor in, in that time the, there was no built-in microphone in a tape recorder. You had to connect it with the cable. But we uh, we also producing a lot for Swedish Defence, which was a special made uh, after the military descriptions. For example, we make a microphone, the close talk microphones, who must resist water by using on, on some kind of ships. What sort of test facilities did you have at Pearl in those days? Was your development guided by measurement and testing, or was it mainly guided by listening? <laughs> of course, uh, um, I listen a lot of the microphones, but the test instruments is much, much uh, uh, important. Uh, I can't trust my ears. <laughs> I must trust the instruments. So what sort of instruments did you have? Traditionally, we, we uh, measure uh, in an anechoic chamber the fre 
frequency response and um, the noise level. And we can uh, also check the THD. We don't use any kind of, let, let's say, uh, to, to, to drop the microphone in the floor. <laughs> Sometimes it happens <laughs> and we just have to mess here again. <laughs> so during your time at Pearl, uh, Runa Rosander invented the rectangular capsule, which has been a hallmark of Pearl and MyLab microphones ever since. How did he come up with this idea? His idea was probably to, to make a large capacitor capsule in a dimension which was demanded to be inside, in, not in a big microphone. He, he, he always wanted the microphone to be as small as possible. Uh, but when the capsule was long and narrow, it was possible to get the large membrane area in a small cover. Uh, Mr. Sander don't like Norman's large microphone hosting. <laughs> Why was size so important to Mr. Rosander then? Why did he need the microphones to be small? I don't know. He, he told me sometimes, if you are uh, stand in front of the microphone, in TV for example, if you have a very big microphone, you can't see the face of the people. The microphone has to be recording a very good sound, but it's not necessarily to, to see it. But the rectangular capsule turns out to have some different properties from the usual circular capsule as well. Can you describe how it's different? A round capsule has resonances, only one resonance, because uh, there is one measure the diameters of the capsules, but the rectangular capsules have more smaller resonances, depends on the, the, the wide and the length and diagonals and so on. It means uh, it was more easy to make a flat frequency response. How did Mr. Rosander choose the particular dimensions of the rectangular capsule? I guess uh, you can calculate in uh, square millimeters or, or a one inch capsule to, to, to get the, the area you need, you just have make the length is possible, it's important. People often describe the sound of the rectangular capsule as being similar to that of a ribbon microphone. Is that just a false association because they look sort of similar or is there actually any substance to it? I, I don't think our usual rectangular capsule have much uh, similar with a ribbon microphone. I don't think so. But, uh, but our very long ELM capsules have some similarities with the ribbon microphone, especially the ELMB, which are a figure of eight pattern. So the ELM microphones were developed um, in the early years of this century, and they have a much more elongated capsule than the traditional rectangular uh, Pearl MyLab capsule. So what are the qualities? What, what, what is different about this longer capsule? First of all, we, we have a large area of the membrane, which gives us a large um, capacity and which results in lower noise. I got the idea from Kavi Alexander at the Vortelil Acoustic. The idea 
is that the microphone capsule with that dimension reducing reflection from floor and ceiling. The capsule gets this effect when the half wave length corresponds to the membrane length. So, so the capsule gets the figure eight pattern in the vertical plane, but in the horizontal plane, still it's a good cardioid that format 70 by 10 millimeters gives a boost advantage of small microphones and a large microphone, large membrane microphones. So, so the ELM is of that reason also very used in many concert halls and the opera houses. My very first prototypes of the ELM was in figure of eight uh, pattern and uh, was used by Carl Alexander when I make uh, a recording in St. Petersburg, of St. Petersburg Philharmonic Orchestra. He took the microphones for a hot recording in, in St. Petersburg. That record which got much praise. So the main benefit of this very elongated capsule is you get an asymmetric pickup pattern and that from the end of the microphone you get a, you almost always get a very deep null like you would on a figure eight microphone, but the rest of the microphone can exhibit a standard pattern like uh, cardioid or, or omni even. You, you still have the effect uh, of uh, reducing reflections from noise, from, from um, ceiling and floor. But um, the advantage we have for the very narrow membrane, but very long, it gives us uh, a large membrane ca capsule, but the microphone will produce and use sound very high up in high frequencies and uh, very, very flat frequency response. In the 1960s, um, Pearl, along with most microphone manufacturers, moved away from valve products to solid-state microphones. Did you ever think at the time that the valve models would be collectible and desirable one day, or did you think that this was a dead technology? I think um, we made the microphones very, very much in the same way as from the very beginning. Uh, electronic components uh, become better and better uh, we can lower noise, and um, but it certainly comes new models, especially for some occasions and new designs as well. But um, the old models with um, valve microphones, there are people who who like that kind of microphones. Uh, <laughs> they they don't they are not so many. But there is a market for it. Many modern microphone manufacturers do still have valve microphones in their catalogues. Neumann do, Audio-Technica do, for example. Were you tempted to reintroduce a valve microphone? We just do it. Oh, yes? Tell us about this. <laughs> yeah. Yes, we have a, we have a, we have a very, very new uh, valve microphones. Uh, there have only been uh, some uh, prototypes yet, um, which are out for for testing, and um, we have got a very good good response. And um, it's a what shall I say a real a real valve microphones, 
no no FET. Uh, so a, a classical uh, schematics. Uh, but we are using the ELM capsules. The microphone models, we call it ELM-T, T in tube. <laughs> so although we're using a classic valve circuit, the capsule itself has never before been used in a valve microphone. So in a sense, it's a, it's a new valve microphone that is offering something different. Yes, yes, you're right. And um, <laughs> I guess the, that's one reason to, to um, people who, who test the new microphone uh, like it so much. Uh, I, I think it depends very much about um, uh, that we, we use the ELM capsule. The ELM capsule also has a big area on the membrane, which, like in the other microphones we use, give us a lower noise. The valve microphones mostly have a little bit more noise than others, uh, but this one is a um, quite low noise level. I look forward to trying it. You've also recently introduced the VIP60, which is an updated version of the VIP50, the MyLab VIP50. That was a breakthrough product for MyLab at the time because it sort of brought them to much wider attention in the American market. What do you think made that microphone so successful? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it looks very designed. This design of microphones is um, it's not like other microphones. I'm, I'm responsible for the technical solution and the microphone and the design. Uh, but not for the for the electronics. But not not everyone <laughs> liked the design. Uh, but I like it. It was also the I, I guess it was the first microphone uh, with different controls, such um, uh, different patterns, high pass filter and alternation of level. Uh, we have never made microphones with that before. Uh, so. Maybe people got more interested to, to, to check them, check out. How important is the shape and size of the, the microphone body to the sound of the microphone? It's very important. We speak about reflection earlier uh, from, from floor and ceiling, but you will also have reflection inside the microphone. So it's very important to don't have anything which will disturb the sound waves when from 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 the music instrument or whatever on its way from the instrument to the membrane and as you know most microphones have a metal net as bigger as possible to not have um, some kind of walls or um, no, something inside who can disturb. I wonder if you could give us some insight into how microphones are made today at Pearl and MyLab, because in the 1950s and 60s you were using just very basic tools. Are microphones still handmade today, or do you have it very? Is it very automated? Uh, 
they are uh, manufactured handmade even today uh, of course um, we use we use more or less the same instruments that's not uh, complicated tools it depends uh, a lot of uh, the person who is using the tools not everyone can do it you must have a feeling for for the instrument you must have a feeling for for the material I mean, I was educated uh, in fine mechanics, and that's what very important to understand to handle very, very small dimensions. All these years, I have seen people who try to begin uh, work with the capsule, but you have to say stop. You can't <laughs> because they, because they um, they have not the feeling for it. And do you think the capacitor microphone is a mature technology or is there still room for further development in the future? Basically, we, we make them in the same way as um, from, from the very beginning. Not exactly, but uh, very much is um, very same. But, but uh, as I told you before, electronics components be better, better. So but the microphones we do today, uh, we manufacture very high quality. <laughs> the question is, can it be better? <laughs> I don't know. Somebody come up from time to time with new models. Um, some of them still alive, some drop down. That will be changed. But uh, I think if you have a, a product who is very, very good in, and you are on the top of what you can do, the next step will not radically change anything. You, you just got a little, little bit. And I think you are, we are very much on the top now. I mean, if you are climbing a mountain and you are on the top, you can't climb higher. <laughs> I don't know, maybe other people, but I, I have done my job. <laughs> but, but there will be others who can take over. And I hope that you're enjoying a well-earned retirement after your 60 years in the microphone business. And are you still involved at all in the microphone development? Actually, it's 68 years from the very years. <laughs> okay, I don't work nine to, to, to five. But um, yes, I, I, I'm in the office uh, sometime to from time to time, and I, mostly I help them uh, if there is repair of old tube microphones, for example, which um, people still want to be repaired. It's just fun <laughs> to work with it. <laughs> I do it when I have time for it. So if there's not some anything to do here, I can still drop in for a coffee. <laughs> Well, it's pretty amazing that you can still get your 70-year-old tube microphones repaired at the manufacturer. That's what I call customer service. Thank you so much, Brent. It's been wonderful talking to you. It's been an absolute privilege. Um, I hope you continue to enjoy a long and fruitful retirement and keep on repairing those tube microphones for as long as, as, long as possible. <laughs> Thank you. Nice to be here. Thank you for listening. And be sure to check out the show notes page for this episode, where you'll find further information along with web links and details of all the other episodes. 
And just before you go, let me point you to the soundonsound.com forward slash podcasts website page where you can explore what's playing on our other channels. Thank you.